so I stood up on top of my APC and I just went, Brad, to the director. Brad! Brad! And finally, Brad, he goes, what? I said, if anybody asks you, you tell them the two's ready to fucking rock. And all of a sudden, snap, click, bang, rack, rolling, goes, all right. And my guys told me inside the tank, they went, fucking right, we're all right. It just got everybody going, ah. And the, he came up to me after the shoot, and he said that in that moment, he was starting to freak out a little bit. He says, I think I may have bitten off more than I could chew with this. And he said that moment kicked everything in. And it was. It was just taking those... Those, 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 those dry, dull, crazy moments. I channel my uncles Rick and Reg, who have that ability to kind of liven it up with one little burst. Welcome to season three of the Camp Fifi Uncensored podcast. It is now. I'm so excited for our episode five, part one, with my guest, Jeremy Ratchford, who I was just smiling from ear to ear while we had our interview. And as I listened back, just there was just so many sweet moments that I couldn't stop continuing to smile. So I look forward to you pulling up a seat and listening as we touch on so many subjects. And it all has to do with energy, inspiration, acting, and fatherhood, and a lot of in between. So pull up a seat, take a listen. Here we go. Hello. <coughs> What's happening, baby? Look at how handsome you are. Seriously, so delicious. You look fantastic. <laughs> you do, baby. Thank you. Thank you so much. Life ultimately has been really great. Life is great. Happy New Year, Jeremy Ratchford. <laughs> Anything I say can and will be used against me? Oh, my God, both of us. That's why I do this podcast. So anything can fly out of one's mouth. That is why it's called Camp BB Uncensored. So deep breath. And thank you so much for being here as my guest. I have loved and adored you probably since I first laid eyes on you in 26 on like what I thought was going to be four weeks of my life or four episodes of, you know, just kind of coming in at the tail end of your third season on Cold Case. Little did I know it would be, you know, five seasons and 16 years later and as madly in love as, you know, you make people want, you know, just fall for you from, from the get-go, Jeremy. So I want to say thank you for being my guest and thank you for being a part of something that really matters to me, which is using our connections and our conversations and sharing life experiences and why I think this is so important. And one of the things that I always felt about you, who was somebody who gathered people together really well. Because you're, you're like a magnet. You are. You make people feel at ease. You make people feel welcome. And I want to take the launch from there and say, you know, I know you are originally from Canada. We're basing this out of Los Angeles right now, right? You're, yep. you're also here. And, um, but you came from originally Canada and my Canadian mates, I always think of as like my Illinois, Wisconsin mates, much more earthy, much more like have a moral compass. Now I'm making a very umbrella statement, of course, because, you know, not everybody runs and rules their life that way. But you came from Canada. And to me, that makes sense about who you are which may sound really crazy, but I want you to speak on that and, and your child growing up in your childhood in Canada and how that formed you. Uh, 
I, I, there's a, there's an interesting take. Uh, I watched a, uh, now I can't remember the name. Um, I mean, there's so, uh, my, my eldest son was on set with me uh, for a movie. Uh, and I was working with another guy who was, uh, I think it might be released soon, but we did it years and years and years ago. Yeah. Uh, one of the characters, when he's in distress, his two spiritual guides are Elvis and Jesus. And I, they hired me to play Elvis and this other guy to play Jesus and he was hysterical. Um, and he was a really nice man. His name escapes me right now. I haven't really seen it in eight years, but um, at the end of that day, uh, Dex, my eldest, who was young, eight years old or something, he turned to me and he just said, Dad, that guy's so nice, he could be Canadian. And I was just like, that kind of, I, when I told that actor that too, he was just like, he did the same thing. He was like, oh my God, it was like, it's so nice. Uh, and I, I, I don't know what the Canadianism is. Because uh, there's, you know, you can find some absolute nightmares in Canada as well. But <laughs> for the part, uh, we're, again, to put it another way too, there's a, a, when you look at icons in Canada, mm -hmm. One that sticks out, like here in the States, you know, like John Wayne was always yeah, talking to the camera and telling people how to do it and did it and God fearing and did it and did it and did it. And there was always this machismo and um, yeah, one of the, the biggest icons in Canada is a guy called Terry Fox. Do you know okay. what Terry? I don't, I don't think I do know about Terry Fox, interestingly enough. Who is Terry Fox? Uh, Terry Fox, uh, back in the 80s, was diagnosed with cancer. He'd already lost his leg. Uh, and to bring awareness to the cause, he said, I'm going to run. I'm going to jog across Canada. And he dipped his foot in the water at the Atlantic Ocean and started running a marathon a day. And he had this style of running because this is early days of prosthetics too, but he ran on this one leg and he didn't make it because during the run, he developed lung cancer and cancer just ate him up kind of on this quest. And to this day, I don't think anyone has raised more of money or awareness. He still is generating. There are, 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 are things every year, but it was like this completely selfless giving. Uh, and that's, many Canadians will put him above John Wayne. They'll put him above any other sports or, or, or celebrity or, or whatever, whatever it's, I, I mean, I find it impossible today to talk celebrity because it's everything from a sex tape to um, uh, screwing people over for millions of dollars to, to maybe actually accomplishing something. We just lost Pele and I, I don't follow soccer at all, but I know, you know, that man did a lot for that game and do that game. Um, yes. But, uh, so I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, I just know that yeah, Canadians are a good group of people, I think. Uh, yeah. Well, I do think you answered the question because I think that, you know, I, I, I identify my, as I said, my Canadian mates. And, and I think it became even more clear to me after I moved to the West Coast that, um, you know, there's a connectiveness, like even Midwesterners will have this 
uh, light bulb moment out here that will be like, oh, oh my God, so you could be from Nebraska or you could be from Ohio, but you, and you could have been raised differently, religiously different, culturally different, education different, but there is a moral compass in Canada is far vast than, you know, the Midwest is. And, and it's kind of to that point where there's like this, there's this thing in the soil and there's always been this relatedness. It's always, I think, one of one of my um, that holds bright in my heart with creating with peers unknowingly that happen to come from there. That there's just there is a kindness. There is a thing that's uh, a work ethic, a thing of just showing up and being present and doing things selflessly. And yes, we of course are making extremely general statements right now about a large group of humanity. (laughs) But what I love about you and I is the cup is always half full. It's never half empty. And I think that to my point of view and how I aligned, you know, you talked about spirit, spirit guides, Elvis, Jesus, all the things. Listen, all we are is energy, right? All we are are spirit guides being guided by past, present, future, whatever, whether we believe or not, it's like spinning all around us. And we're just a part of one of those many particles that are spinning all around. And how some of us collectively keep spinning and dancing with each other versus others that shoot out into God knows where. You know, it's whether you call it luck of the draw, like I consider this luck of the draw, like me aligning with Jeremy Ratchford is to me a luck of the draw. Because your spirit is so bright. You shine so brightly. You're so, in my book, so underrated. You because you are just so full of things. And and I think it's I think it's individuals like you that have had so many um, opportunities, and yet at the same time, to me, it's like untapped. Like I just look at you as just like, oh my God, this man is like up here. And, 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 and the world needs to know, and you're just that to me. And I don't say that to blow smoke up your, you know, sport coat. I, I say, (laughs) I wanted to say dress, but you know, I wanted to assimilate with what you're wearing. I, I really don't say that. I like it. I don't need to say that. I'm saying that because I mean that from my heart. Um, you, you know, I was thinking about you yesterday as I was walking our dogs in this vast park out in LA, in what we call the basin near, uh, near Sepulveda Basin. And the whole time I'm having Neil Diamond playing in my ears. Yes. And I think of you lovingly and us in uh, filming on location in Pennsylvania in actually, I mean, why did I just like Pittsburgh? This was like, in like, where, where am I? Not Philadelphia. Well, Philadelphia, Jesus God, I can't believe I just like, I love Philadelphia and you so lovingly, um, end up with three tickets to go see Neil Diamond, who I never in a million years would have been like, yeah, let's go see Neil Diamond. And the, to this day, the, I can see your face right here in the corner of my eye and Helen to my left and just having the most joyful experience in this collective gathering of human beings. You might as well have been going to church. It was that great. And I remember hearing him yesterday singing Reverend in, in blue jeans. And I think that those spirits like a Neil Diamond, like a Jeremy Radford, maybe a Felicia Linsky are people who get that, have the, that those spirits, have those platforms, need to align, need to keep pulling forward, need to keep speaking up are here for greater reasons. And that's why I do this because I love highlighting people like you who I think touch a lot of people's lives and keep doing that. And um, that's why I asked you about your childhood 
because growing up in Canada, I wanted to know like what and who influenced you. I know your father was an artist. I, for some reason, can't remember what your mom did, but you know, your father was an artist. So what and who around you was influencing you as little Jeremy? Um, yeah, uh, of course my dad, uh, and, uh, my dad had some friends, uh, one being Bill Herzog and another being Dave Simon, uh, and were really big influences on me. Um, both Bill and Dave had girls. Uh, so I became sort of the, the son that they never had, uh, and uh, Dave Simon was magic, uh, a storyteller, uh, funny as hell. Uh, and Bill was um, funny as hell, but in a real quiet way. Uh, and, and I can't throw a stone without uh, coming up with my uncles, Rick and Reg. Uh, my mom had uh, twin brothers, Rick and Reg. And um, their influence on my early days is unbelievable. Um, they are uh, sort of quiet and shy at some point. And then they can be the most loud, boisterous game changers. Uh, and uh, uh, I would say I, you will be able to attest to this, but it's like I, I often consider myself the Friday night man. Uh, when I get called in to set late on a Friday night, uh, and I know the crew has been beaten all week. Yeah. When I'm there, uh, I, I announce myself uh, and get people going. Because I've had many people come up to me saying, we know when we hear you that everything's going to be okay. Because it's just, let's, we, 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 you know, it's that age-old thing in, in our business too. It's like, the sun goes down every day. So why are we always so surprised when it does? We're losing the light, people! We're losing the light! Like, yeah, because that's <laughs> every day. And we know we have to have advanced warning. Um but I channel my uncles Rick and Reg coming in on those times because um, I've also considered that part of my extra duty as an actor uh, mm -hmm. to keep morale up. Uh, uh, I'll tell you that there was another one. Um, I was shooting a film in Toronto and the opening sequences uh, a, a jeep with a commander and a, a sergeant arriving and we're been in Bosnia, Canadian peacekeepers. And it's this big, long monologue. Like, Welcome to this. This is where the trouble is. Da, 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 da. And as people show up in my unit, I'm sergeant of unit two, and we arrive in a, an APC. Uh, that's an armed personnel carrier. Uh, and at one point I call it the big white thing. And uh, uh, the, the, the army soldiers that we had there never let me forget it and laugh there. Oh, big white thing, APC. <laughs> but uh, the back of our APC opens up and my guys come out. But because I'm super sergeant, I jump off the top of this thing because I'm up the top in the gun. So I jump off the top. It's about uh, eight feet, six to eight feet or something like that. Yeah, eight feet. So I do it over and over again because the one actor keeps forgetting his lines. Oh, for heaven's sakes. And it's getting a little taxing because then, you know, the eighth jump down from eight feet, it's like, okay, I got my squats in for the day. Uh, and two things happened. At one point, this, this actor kind of said, I don't know what to do. And there was a real army guy there, Flanders, they called him, because he, he looked like Ned Flanders, but... Uh, his commanding officer also told me that this, he's the best guy to have because he'll do anything. He's their morale guy. But he yeah. heard this, oh, I don't know what to do. And he goes, you know what you do? You know what you do? You get in that fucking van over there and you learn your fucking lines. And everyone kind of went, holy shit, like, yes, we all wanted to say it, but we couldn't. 
being in the acting field, but this guy said it. But uh, so on my end, I love the military. So back on my side, so I'm standing on top of the APC, and uh, we hit that moment that happens on sets where everything pauses and nobody knows exactly why. Mm-hmm. It, I need to get a battery. It, like, it, like no one knows, but there's just kind of this still. And then when the longer it goes on, the more you feel people going, it would be like being in the starting gates and going, take your. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the middle of this lull and the, the video village was about uh, 150 feet away or whatever. So I stood up on top of my APC and I just went, Brad, to the director, Brad, Brad. And finally, Brad, he goes, what? I said, if anybody asks you, you tell them the two is ready to fucking rock. And all of a sudden, snap, click, bang, rock, rolling, goes rock, rock. And my guys told me inside the tank, they went, fucking right, we're on. It just got everybody going, ah. And the, he came up to me after the shoot, and he said that in that moment, he was starting to freak out a little bit. He says, I think I may have bitten off more than I could chew with this. And he said that moment kicked everything in. And it was. It was just taking those... Those, 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 those dry, dull, crazy moments. I channel my uncles Rick and Reg, who have that ability to kind of liven it up with one little burst. Um, so they were a huge impact uh, on my life. And then I would even say the neighborhood. Uh, I've taken my guys back there a few times, and to know that we knew every backyard. You know, we go to one another's house completely in darkness by crawling through hedges and trees and over fences and, you know, know where the dogs were. Uh, and there was a, a, something, I don't know if my guys really experienced that because I don't know, we were, you know, the doors were unlocked. Yeah. The only time we locked our door was when we went to my grandmother's place, which was an hour away. Mm. I always remember because we'd get home and usually after the hour long drive when you're a kid, but we'd have to pee and you'd jump out of the car, run to the door and be like, we had to wait for my dad to come on and lock the door because the door was never locked. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And I just remember being on our bikes all the time, like going away. I kind of laughed. I spent more time with my kids over COVID mm-hmm. than I spent with my dad my entire life because mm-hmm. you know we came home we were on our bikes and gone came home for dinner you know had dinner with my dad all that stuff but like covid there was like 18 months of 24 7 and it's mm-hmm. like wow uh but my my dad was always there but mm-hmm. again on weekends you know my guys were like what are we doing this weekend it's like uh, uh i don't know what you're gonna do <laughs> Because we were always just out. I, there's a, a great meme that has a bunch of bicycles sitting on a front yard. It said, we didn't have social media back then. This is where we knew where everyone was. Yes. And there was a great shot of, um, there was a pool uh, at Waterloo Park. Uh, and there was like a, a, an Olympic-sized swimming pool. And then there was a diving pool. And the diving was really deep. It had a three-meter board, a springboard, and another one. And the shot that was online in a group, like it's a it's a it's a, a Facebook group for people from my hometown. So it's like, take a picture of this. And there's all these bikes on the outside of the fence. And I looked at it, none of them are locked. None of them are chained to the fence. They're just there. And inside is about a hundred kids and maybe two adults and then teenage lifeguards. Mm-hmm. But it's amazing that it's like that 
we would go there. And I can't even remember what it was. Was it maybe 35 cents to, to get a day pass to go on this incredible diving board? And that, that was the other passage because everybody, the, invariably, one person a day got up to the three meter board and got terrified and had to climb back down. Of course, of course, of course. Of course, of yeah. course. Well, you know, it's interesting that you mention all this from the adults in your life and, and, you know, from uncles and family friends and, and the personalities and their achievements and how they influence you by your observations and then how it influenced you combined with who you show up being and how you were born to be and your characteristics of how that formulated you and the neighborhood and, you know, like referencing to these memes, whether it's, this is social, this was our social influence, i.e. being on a bike and, you know, being on it 24 seven when we weren't sleeping or having dinner with our parents or in school, the swim club, be it the local public swim club or the private. I mean, you and I are talking the same talk. You and I had the same, I mean, I was just referencing last week about learning how to ride the bike and we lived on a slightly bit of a hill and our house was at the corner of the base of this hill. And then the, 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 the Tamarack Lane, as it was called, continued on to the next main street, which is where the public elementary school was. So everybody would get me up at the top of the hill and come on, Felicia. And my parents bought me on my seventh birthday, the, the Schwinn, you know, banana seat bicycle in a blue, not a pink and a blue. And um, I get on that bike and I get ready and like freaking Artie Johnson and laughing, I go down the hill and I'd hit our front yard and tip right over. And that would be my breaking because I would be like, I can't do it, but I can, you know, but we would all like just be all together in the foundation of who that formulates us to have become and how we show up being on our daily life. For those of us, especially who, not especially, I want to take that back, but for those of us who had that good fortune, how we go out into the world and continue to either seek it, replicate it, manifest it, keep putting, throwing those rocks in the water kind of effects all goes back to those foundational moments that shaped who we are. I'm completely, completely convinced of it. Because when you talk about like how you show up being on a set on a Friday night or in the moment of that hanging pause of what in God's name are we doing here, people show up and be a leader for sake, you know, like you're getting paid to have this title called director, show up and be a director show up and be a first AD. Don't make me like show up and have to shake the the snowball kind of thing. But the beautiful thing about people like yourself, people like myself, the reason why I do call this the Camp Fifi Uncensored podcast is when I was a camp counselor, I was like in my purest form. I was the leader. I was the comedian. I was the person that everybody wanted to go to, to be recognized to be raised up to like they knew that I would be stern and funny and roar like a lion they knew I was all love they knew that Felicia was going to get the shit done and she was the counselor you wanted to have and going through life I've always thought of myself as a human being that beacon of light and in different environments your light can get shine brighter and your light can be dimmed And, you know, being a bright light like yourself and going through, you know, having that foundation and setting your sights on, now, I don't know how, and we'll get to this, but how you formulated your, your, your light on, I want to be a performer. Let's go in that direction. I want to know for somebody like you, who does have such a bright light, how you channeled that energy into becoming an artist slash performer, and then not allowing for your light that's so bright to have its moments where it could have been, you know, people could attempt to dim it. It's a big one, but I just need to ask. It's a big, big question. 
Yeah, wait for him. Now I'm suddenly back in fourth grade where I played the messenger to the king uh, in Rumpelstiltskin. Mm -hmm. And it, we had the tables blocking the side of the stage to the audience. That was our little holding area. Mm -hmm. And there's one sound that gets me more than anything else. And it's the sound of a theater warming up and the audience. Uh, so I first experienced it in fourth grade, but then I did some more, uh, uh, did some performances at the, the center and the square in Kitchener. And to hear a, a full orchestra come in and boom, 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 boom. And that warmed up and the chatter uh, and people, heels going down the hallway and we'd start to apply the makeup and costumes, but you'd hear the audience slowly filter in and that murmur and that murmur. And then you'd hear the boom, which meant five minutes. And then all of a sudden you didn't see it, but you heard it with the house mics on when the lights go down and the audience just goes, and it, it just, there, it's starting, it's, it's, it's the best. And that anticipation, and then to be in front of an audience and to hear an audience react, you know, like when, when 600 people react as one, it's this amazing energy, it's this amazing life force. Uh, and I was talking about just something, uh, we did uh, Fiddler on the Roof, uh, and I was both Russian and Jew. And in the wedding scene, I start off as a Jew, and then I run off stage halfway through, change into the Russian outfit to come back in and bust up the wedding. And there's nothing better that on a Sunday matinee performance that have traditionally a lot of kids and families to get booed off stage because you're bad, because kids don't hold back. Like, Boo! So to be booed off stage as a villain, that's the other one that you start realizing too. It's usually a lot more fun to be the villain uh, than it is the lead. <laughs> the lead is always like, I'm on a quest and I, I, <laughs> one little piece of help or as a, uh, uh, my acting coach, David Rotenberg said, um, uh, the leading man sort of like didn't have his breakfast cereal that morning. And that's what's, you know, so he's just a little off his game. And then once he gets it together, he'll solve it. But it's like, yeah, the leading man roles uh, oftentimes are just dull. Um, it's the villains that are fun, guys. That's very fun. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I don't think that... So I grew up a theater kid as well, but but I didn't grow up a theater kid. Like, there was no set plan. Like, oh, we're going to make this kid a performing arts kid. But yet I was in all the arts, from dance and fine arts application to performance. And it's funny because... Um, all those things you described just, I mean, bring tears to my eyes, get the chills, the whole, like all of it. I mean, I was one of those lucky kids that my family, because my father and the family businesses of fashion took him to New York all the time. I saw Broadway from the time I was like five or six years old. And I was that kid who literally sat on the edge of my seat and was just like in my first two productions was literally Hello, Dolly with Pearl Bailey and Louis Armstrong. Oh, yeah. my God. Like, ah. and then I saw the original production of Hair. All within like those first couple, those were my first two productions of Broadway. I remember getting on the edge of my seat as a little kid when they came out from under the tarp nude and I was like, yes. And I would just, <laughs> I mean, you know, you think about like, when you think about the boys, your children, 
who, you know, are getting more and more, you know, older as time goes on, of course. And you think about them at that age and just like that, you said, like kids in theater are just, they'll tell the truth. They'll boo you, they'll do whatever. And I just remember just loving all that energy, loving all that life, thinking like, how do you do this? How do you become a part of this? And yet not really thinking that at the same time, just knowing that my truth was I was an artist and I needed to continue to express myself. I didn't know where it was going to take me. I knew I didn't want to be a starving artist. <laughs> I knew I wanted to be a successful artist. I want to be successful. You and I were raised around people who created success in their life and showed up doing that, whatever it was that they did, whatever that meant. And I think at, from a, going back to our original stuff about being Canadian, Midwestern, what have you, work ethic, showing up, being loyal, all those things, I think have been probably really important tools in our toolbox to have for the, being in the artist way of the journey of how you show up and deliver. Like you said, being the Friday night man, I call myself the pitch hitter. Swear to God. I swear to God, I feel like come in. Is there anything you know? Whatever you need, I'll deliver it. So I I relate to what you say because I think you know my next question was about you know success and like when you set the path out to you know from your from your young stage of, of experiences in theater. When did you, like, when did the light bulb for you go off that you wanted to do and set forth into a professional lifestyle of being an artist? What, what was that for you? Um, yeah, I think it was just, it was my destiny or fate. <laughs> uh, high school, I did the, the productions and uh, did assemblies and stuff like that. It was always kind of performing and creative. Um, and then I went the first ever uh, uh, at that same theater that I did the shows at. Um, they had a summer program uh, for uh, uh, acting, or not for acting, but just for, I don't know, theater. Uh, mm -hmm. I just like 80 girls there for dance. And five guys there saying, like, uh, I thought I'd show up to do some try acting. And, you know, it's a lot of dance, a lot of dance. <laughs> Ended up putting on a variety show where I did most of the, the little vignettes between the dance numbers. Um, but I, through a friend of mine, got introduced to an agent in Toronto and wrote down and... My first audition was to play Gilbert in Anne of Green Gables. Uh, and I was 19 years old, six feet tall. Uh, and I was, uh, as my eldest said at one point, you were jacked. Um, back when the, the warehouse now was a temple, uh, I was uh, uh, strong looking, I guess you could say. Right. I sat down with the director for this audition and the second I opened my mouth, he started to laugh. And then he said, I, this is not anything to do with your talent or anything else. I said, but I have to tell you, just hearing your voice and seeing you here, you look like a gorilla opposite the girl we have to play Anne. Like it just kind of said like, there's no, <laughs> there's no way we're gonna buy me and I think uh, I was 19 at the time or 18, 19. And I, I think Anne had to be 13 or something like that. So it was just like, no, this does not. <laughs> it's, it's, they needed someone a little. Um, and then my next audition uh, was for a lead in a horror movie and I got mm -hmm. it. And just that just started one of the most insane sets I've ever been on. Loved every second of it. I was 19, had a blast. Um, and then, yeah, came back, then 
started auditioning for commercials, TV shows, and just I kind of learned by working uh, yeah. and loved it and kind of uh, being fearless. Like, you know, if they ask, I, I always said, um, when I'm on set, I'm like a border collie and you've got the Frisbee. Like, what do you want? What do you want to do? You know, throw that Frisbee and I'll give it a run. Uh, uh, oh, that's same, so good. The same thing. And that's just to kind of segue, I guess. But um, yeah, yeah, and that's that's when you trust the people. And then sometimes when you trust the people, it's like when they have the Frisbee, it's like, no way, Jack, I'm not going after that. Mm -hmm. It's knowing the difference between who's got your back and who doesn't. Yeah, so going back to destiny, I mean, I agree. You, you're definitely, you know, meant to be in front of the camera performing, what have you. That I don't think doesn't mean that I don't see you as giving direction or producing pieces or what have you. But I would say your life force is is channeling and and entertaining that I definitely believe is is a strong suit of yours. And it's interesting because when I was thinking about our interview, I was thinking about how, um, what I wanted to talk about with you and the three words that came up was life, acting and fatherhood. And um, because I know life experiences is what defines us acting is like to me probably your source of a thing that you can thread through much of your life um and how you've seen seasons go on in your lifetime and where you've been depending upon those aspects starting with like you said you know when you started your professional career at 19 when you got that ball rolling, that snowball was building, so to speak. What was it that got you from being a performer in Canada that got you into now choosing to come to the States? Um, yeah, I uh, did a lot of work in Canada. Uh, and um they're just it, it got to a point where excuse me um there was only so much you could do uh and you know it's sort of like if you want to be a country western singer you might have to move to memphis or or, you know, like it's if you want to be on Broadway, New York is where you go if you want to. Yeah. You know, it's like that's and Los Angeles has always been, you know, the Mecca. Uh, and I had done just about everything I could do in Canada. Uh, you know, I'd done some big American projects. I do uh, series work. Uh, had my own movies. Uh, and it was like the next step was coming out here. I wasn't prepared. Uh, when I first got down here, I, I literally, I put packages together and sent them to agencies. And then I took out the a map and was finding out where the agencies were. Cause I was going to say, okay, well, I'll meet with these guys on Tuesday morning. I'll go for lunch and then I'll meet with these guys. Cause they're a few blocks away that Tuesday at three or so. And, and I was going to plot out the whole. And three weeks later, when I still couldn't get past the secretary, I was like, this isn't going the way. <laughs> it's like, Jesus. Um, and I actually had a test deal before I had an agent because I knew casting agents down here that were like, well, screw it. Come in for this. Just, you know, you've got an agent in Canada if anything needs to be done. But uh, and during that kind of drummed up my own kind of. Uh, yeah. I think I'd shot six movies the year before, had opened up the, uh, the Toronto Film Festival. Uh, so I, I came down here with a big head of steam and all of a sudden I was like, nah, 
Uh, so I just uh, kind of worked hard at it down here uh, and ended up uh, going back to Toronto to, um, or sorry, I should say Toronto, I can't say Toronto. Um, and I shot Angel Eyes there. Uh, this is that interesting little thing where they, it's, a, it's the dirty part of the business. Mm. I had to be a local hire, mm. even though in Toronto for years. Mm -hmm. So they ended up spending more on JLo's shoes than they did mm -hmm. on. Uh, mm -hmm. Pay my flight. I had to pay my accommodations. I got paid actor scale in Canada with no residuals. But from that, I read for a show called Blue Murder in Toronto, and ended mm -hmm. up back uh, for three years between June and November. We would shoot thirteen episodes, and real great training ground. Uh, we had great writers. Uh, we had an unbelievable cast and crew and we put together a show that was really good. Uh, and then I remember it came back down um, in the hiatus and my contract was up. It was a three-year contract. And the day that they called saying, we want to go another year, uh, and we'll try and make things work, but you know you're going to have to take a pay cut because the the funding in Canada was difficult. Uh, so that fourth year was going to cost you know, whatever. I wasn't going to make as much, and I said, "Well, I was just about to call you guys uh, to see where you guys were because I got to tell you now I can't come back because I just signed with Bruckheimer on a show called uh, I think it was called Look Again." at that point or the untitled Jerry Bruckheimer series. Um, and then, yeah, then that's, uh, that's the story of that getting on that show. And, um, and again, that, what a blast that was because with that old and young casting, uh, I got the, I got to work with Peter Graves. I got to ask him yeah. if he liked, if he liked gladiator movies in the middle of an interrogation, laugh my ass. Off. Everybody on the crew was like, everybody wanted to ask him that. I did. I got so true. Yeah, the depth. The depth of that show, i.e. Cold Case, and the level of talent that passed through that show. And, and you know, it's ironic because, you know, I think I was literally there from the first two episodes that you guys ever filmed doing background, ironically. I didn't even know Catherine was the lead of the show. I did not put two and two together, having already known Catherine, having already had a working relationship with her. But I came in to work this big show that was shooting two periods every eight days. Didn't think much of it, just coming in pitch hitting kind of thing. Went off, did movies and all my other things that I do, being with personals and so on and so forth, heading up my own stuff. No, I'll never forget literally finishing a run of three movies, including a Chris Guest movie and um, like just some really special moments and getting this random phone call down the street, like outside of Poquito Mas and to Mary Howard seeking me out, saying that there's this actress, Catherine Morris, who, you know, is requesting you and are you available and da, 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 da. And I was, you know, contracted with certain other talent and I was like I mean yeah I'm just wrapping up but, but if I have these other commitments I need to be able to address those and she's like no problem whatever you need like we just need you she just needs you we want you blah 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 and coming in on that Friday I came in on a Friday no tests no nothing just throw you to the wolves on set not even on stage but back near um the entrance off of Forest Lawn where that was there was an area where you could go to Starbucks and it led to the lane where production office was. We we're shooting in that in this one spot. And I just remember like being like, what is going on? Who are these people? 
like ooh, I I felt like an island unto myself. Here's this well-oiled machine because now it's towards the end of third season. And literally the very first day, you guys getting your pickup for your fourth season. <laughs> and congratulating like Catherine, you know, saying like, that's amazing. Because ironically, when I showed up that Friday morning and I'm in the trailer with my things quietly waiting for her to arrive going, I hope they've got the right Felicia because I really right now don't even know, like if this person is like, this is who, like if I'm who she wanted and I'll never forget Catherine coming in on the hair end of that trailer and being like, Felicia. And I was like, oh, Jesus, God, thank you. Thank you, Catherine. And it had been 96 since I, you know, we'd run into each other, but not work together since. And now so it was a decade later. And I, my heart just was like, oh, thank God. And what the thank God was, you know, a thank God of what people may or may not know. But what you and I know is when you have the good fortune of having these opportunities in our field that everybody is mesmerized by that glamorizes that you know things all these things about it's such a crapshoot what we do life is a crapshoot period right not we have we can have our destiny but we can also miss the like train stop we can we we might have to do a few more you know trips down memory lane before we get back to that train stop i you know i i don't i don't don't have a crystal ball to know how that works i know what i know or i know what i've experienced and you know being on that train stop so to speak was i think life-changing for many people and it didn't matter if you were a participant interactively you know with creating it or if you're an audience member who to this day is like this is one of the favorite, most favorite shows that people still watch in reruns and wish it still was going even all these years later, because the quality of the content, the endless amounts of story. Yes, of course, it had its own formula, but the formula was different than all the NCISs. It, it was it was different. It had its own original footprint. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's interesting as a, as a creative on the side of the road that I'm the creative being makeup and hair, even though trained to be a director, couldn't be a director because I was a female. That, that wasn't going to happen. I mean, I was one of three women on a film set when I first started. And I didn't start in the dark ages. <laughs> yeah. You know, but I was in a boys club. I was in a locker room the whole time literally figuratively and could hold my own which is why i think the success continued uh again whether you talk about destiny or what have you one of the reasons what i love to do and talking back and forth with guests like yourself is is the understanding having similar stories or not of these life paths or these career paths and i think about places like cold case where to have a long running show like that for you, for a seven season, 22, six episodes a season, roughly, is almost unheard of. It is truly winning the lottery. It really, truly is winning the lottery. It does not come easily for every one of those projects that come about. Many hundreds of thousands of scripts never make it to anybody's past somebody's secretary, as you put it, you know, trying to get to the Jerry Bruckheimers of the world is not, there are many, many alligators in, in the, uh, the moat, you know, swimming around the castle, keeping you away from that. So how any of us make it and have a success, I'd like to think it's probably a little bit more than destiny. I think it's, you know, luck and timing and and destiny and perseverance and cup is half full. Nope. Being an idealist and a realist illusionary department. <laughs> a little bit of all of it. And so coming forward with like cold case and we wrapped that in 2010. 
there's been a lot of life. You became a father during cold case. You have raised three boys. How has fatherhood shaped you as a man, as an artist, when it comes to destiny? Oh, wow. That's no small question. No. Uh, well, I don't even know. Uh, like, I love being a dad. Uh, and I've got three completely different kids. Uh, and they're a trip. Uh, and the thing I think that's the funny part is seeing. Um, the different sides of yourself reflected through them. Uh, at some point, it's like looking into a mirror. Uh, and it's funny, I, I, the, the mirror just triggered something, but it's then the season. Um, years ago, it was before Rev was born, so it was just Dex and Wilder. And I have a, a friend named Jack McGee who had done a cold case. And we'd also uh, done a cop award show. But he told me, he said, hey, it's Christmas. He goes, uh, what do I do on Christmas? So I dress up as Santa. And he said, do you leave the presents outside the front door, leave the front door unlocked. And just make sure the name's on the present. And I come in, do a little Santa routine. I'm out, you know, in 15 minutes. Have your cameras ready? Because he goes, he does special. So he came in. Uh, this was the year my eldest was into Kiss and really wanted an <laughs> outfit. So we got them this Ace Freely outfit that Santa gave him. And we were sitting down after uh, having... Christmas, breakfast, brunch, whatever. And my son turned to me and said, Dad, tell me the truth. And he looked at me the, the, the exact same way I was looking at him in his life because I would turn to him if something that I say, listen, tell me the truth. Because if you tell me, we're fine. If you lie to me, then we're not. So even if you broke, like whatever, Tell me the truth. And all of a sudden he goes, Dad, tell me the truth. And I was like, oh, God, looking right at him. That wasn't Santa, was it? And I realized, hey, like, one, two, if you don't start talking, they're going to know that you're lying. And I instantly, and I just, it's like, you're right, buddy. You're right. That wasn't Santa. Because I think Santa, I mean, he's still, because it's still nighttime in Australia. I think he's over Australia. And he's working really busy, but he knew he wanted this outfit. So he sent his good friend, Santa Jack. Uh, Santa Jack showed up and I mean, like only Santa knew he wanted that Ace Freely outfit, right? And he goes, mm -hmm. you know how I knew? And I said, on the inside, I'm like, that works. I got on it just like, <laughs> he goes, you know how I knew? I said, I said, why? He goes, I could tell by his ho, ho, ho. And I just saw little pieces of me and him and all this stuff. And then a week later, uh, Jack was performing uh, Frosty, Frosty the, Frosty the Snowmanalo. It was the Frosty theme to the music of Barry Manilow at uh, the theater right by Warner Brothers. Uh, and we went as a neighborhood, to, uh, so there's like 15 of us. And we were in the parking lot beforehand and Jack was in it, uh, he's the, the lead. And uh, uh, Jack sees him in the parking lot and he just goes, goes Dad, Dad, it's Santa Jack. And it was so cool, cause like, he knew it was special. He knew it was kind of unique, and he had that. Uh, and then to continue on, 
no kids are going to be able to watch this because of what I'm about to say. Um, but that was the same, the same way, this, in that same theme, he comes to me when he found out, he goes, dad, I know. What do you know about Santa? What 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 do you know about Santa? He's, he's not real. I went, okay. Said, yeah, I'm cool with it. I said, you know, not to say anything to your brothers. He goes, oh yeah, yeah. Like, and I love that was that like that one of those instant things of when he found out and he knew not to spoil it for anyone else. Like that was an instant. And then right before he goes. Same for all the other guys, right? And then he goes like the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy said, "Oh no, 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 they're real." And I have a heart. Oh, and then I even asked him this: We've had some big moments, I guess, kind of like we're now discussing some of those things. We mm-hmm. talked about this year, and then I asked these guys. I said, "Do you guys remember the name of your Tooth Fairy?" And they're like, "No, said, you don't." I I wrote you letters from Josephine, your tooth fairy. Your name was Josephine. And I had this really funky uh, custom-built bunk beds for my two youngest guys. So my, my middle guy, Wilder, his, you didn't get in, like, if this is the bed, uh, you didn't, that went wide open. No, his was like a tunnel. So you got Ooh. in it bed and then he slept in the back but they were designed and they looked like um uh they looked like dr seuss meets uh, superheroes and his was the toughest because i had to climb up on this ladder and then climb into the back of this bunk bed over top of him find his tooth <laughs> replace it with the little toy or present or money or and a letter and crawl back out without waking him up and then we were just sitting around and i said do you guys remember your toothbrush he was like no he's like do you know how hard i work but my dex did remember coming home uh because i built this huge elaborate uh, leprechaun trap because that was my first favorite day is halloween we used to we used to do up Halloween like no others. And then my second is uh, 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 St. Patrick's Day, just, just for the leprechauns. Because uh, no matter where I would go, um, on that, I just, I'd stop. Do you guys hear that? Because they're always laughing. And I'd do another school. I think. And I had these guys all like thinking leprechauns were real and uh, you know, always up to mischief. Um, I think that's part of fatherhood. Like uh, I coached each one of them on either football or baseball. Uh, and I had a lot of fun. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, I had a groundskeeper come up to me at the end of one of my games. And he said that when he got out of his car, he heard me screaming and he thought, Oh Jesus, this is good. And as he got closer to the, the diamond, he finally could make out what I was saying. And that's when he broke into a smile. Cause I just, I was yelling at my team. I said, you know, are you having fun? Because if you're not having fun, what are we doing here? Like, you know, come on. And uh, actually it was uh, Danny and I coached one time. And then the next year, that this was the year for that. Um, but we had come up with, um, it was quite funny. I didn't know the seriousness of it. Uh, so I signed up to coach. Danny and I signed up to coach because we saw each other at the tryouts. And then you go to um, uh, drafting. So there you draft your team and it's trying to keep 
all the teams equal. And you also picked your team color and your team name. And so we get in there and it comes up to us. And I said, uh, I knew because I had the, uh, the bumblebee outfit. I thought that'd be fun. I said, can we be the bumblebees or the killer bees? That's what I wanted, the killer bees. And they said, no, no, it's got to be MLB. And I didn't know what that meant. So yeah. I said, hey, can we be the Jedis? And they said, no, it's got to be MLB. And finally, they said, Major League Baseball. Oh, we have to pick. Okay. And they, I said, like, what, what, what's available? And they list, they went, you know, Marlins, Astro, Pirates. I went, Pirates? Pirates. I'll take Pirates. And they said, well, they're not doing really well that year, this year. I said, I don't care how the pirates are doing. I'm just going to have seven-year-olds as pirates. Like that's, that's the fun part of this part. And then we came up with the mantra that for, for Danny and I would yell out to them, who are we? And they go, pirates. I said, what are we saying? <laughs> what time is it for the other team? Time to walk the plank. And we would do this just to get them going. Um, uh, and I had a blast. Like, I, I, I couldn't believe it. Then the next year, someone got to pick before me. Oh, and we, I, I put the Jolly Roger up uh, at the flagpole when we played. Um, I had all sorts of pirate stickers and stuff that you could, you know, the good jobs and stuff. Uh, and the next year, someone tried to take pirates that had just come in. And literally the entire league said, um, you should probably pick something else because this guy, this guy really does the pirate thing. The guy's like, oh, damn. I, I almost wanted to continue this interview and just air it in its full two-parter uh, as one continuum of a two-hour, 19-minute run. But I look forward to you coming back next week, and I look forward to hearing next week's drop as we continue this delicious conversation, Jeremy and I. Um, it's it's exactly why I figured I, I knew why I love this man. But having this conversation just... Uh, cemented that in my brain for those very reasons. So I look forward to you joining us next week. In the meantime, join, subscribe, share, listen on any of your favorite platforms because this is where the spirit is young, the soul is wise, and the life stories are vast. And we talk about everything from soup to nuts or what I like to say from cannolis to egg in the holes and don't forget the s'mores. It's really where connection and conversation happens. And sharing this, building this community is giving it the voice that everybody is wishing for and desiring and looking for and it's here right under their noses so i look forward to you joining us bye for now no.